Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. You come at this time and restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus shut it down. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you will receive power after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Beloved saints, before we go any further, I want to talk to you about the two most important aspects of baptism in the Spirit. We want to ask the question, what does baptism in the Spirit actually mean? First of all, we look at the Greek. We look at the way this is written in the Greek. And we see two important words. The first word is dunamis or power. You will receive power after that. Not before. Anything before that is not power. You will receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to look at this word, first of all, dunamis. I won't spend time on it, but I want you to see it. This word dunamis is taken from the Greek word dunamai. Dunamai means to have the ability that means that the Lord is calling us to do the impossible. He's going to give you the ability. Secondly, I want you to see that this word dunamis is used 120 times in the New Testament. I said dunamis is used 120 times in the New Testament. Do you know what that means? That means that Dunamis is the equivalent of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Can I get a witness somewhere? <laughs> Secondly, I want you to see that the word dunamis is always associated with mighty deeds and mighty works. You will receive the ability by the power of the Holy Ghost to do mighty deeds and mighty works. Now watch this. And you shall be unto me witnesses unto me. This word witnesses shows us the second most important thing about baptism in the spirit. It's not just power. The second powerful entity of being baptized in the spirit is that the Bible says you will be witnesses unto me. That word witnesses in the Greek language is the word martyrs, martyrs. Say it with me, martyrs. You're going to receive power 
to become dunamis martyrs. What does that mean? That means I'm receiving power to lay my life down for the kingdom. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. It doesn't mean that I am receiving power just to feel good. You see, this revival that's coming upon us is going to test us to see how many are willing to be completely sold out for God because this is not a revival just to feel good. This is a revival to be sold out. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. You will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you to be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So we are seeing that we are receiving power to lay our lives down. We are receiving power to surrender to Jesus, to his will. You see, things are coming to a conclusion very quickly. If we cannot see that it's in times something is wrong somewhere. And we must beware that every time another calamity comes upon us, that we do not condition ourselves to calamity so that we are no longer broken before God. Because we can become so conditioned to calamity that we get a hardened heart and don't allow the Holy Ghost to work with us. I want to explain to you what happened in the upper room. I want to explain to you about receiving tongues and why speaking in tongues is very essential, but the work, the manifestation you're filled with the Spirit is tongues. But he doesn't fill you with the Spirit to speak in tongues. That is just the manifestation that you've been filled with the Spirit. You see so many people get it mixed up. So many people say, I want the baptism in the spirit because I want to speak in tongues. But you don't understand. The baptism in the spirit is the manifestation of the spirit to speak in tongues is only the evidence that you've been filled with the spirit. But the purpose of the spirit being filled, filling your life is to give your life completely as a living sacrifice. See, we got it wrong in the charismatic renewal a little bit. I go back, as you know, to the classical charismatic days. I've seen both sides, the classical Pentecostals and the classical charismatics. I came from a perfect classical charismatic era. And so therefore, where the charismatics missed it, is that the charismatics were so excited about the Holy Ghost that they actually believed that if you get filled with the Spirit, and the whole purpose of getting filled with the Spirit would be to speak in tongues. But that is not the purpose of being baptized in the Spirit. The purpose of being baptized in the Spirit is to receive power, to live a holy life, to, to receive power, to give your life to Christ, to, to receive power, to be a living witness every day, to put your own will aside and do the will of God. Are you with me? If you are, say amen.
also got it wrong in this thing of tongues. We got it all wrong. So for a moment, I'm going to talk to you about the tongues question. How many of you want to know about the tongues question? Put your hand up and say, I really want to know about the tongues question. I want you to see what actually happened in that upper room. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire. And it filled, and they were all filled. It sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. Can you say this with me? Other tongues. As the spirit, Apathon Gome, gave them utterance. All right. Now, I want you to see if you study Paul's thesis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and tongues. So important for us to understand tongues. Because tongues is the evidence that we have been filled with the Holy Ghost. That is why William Joseph Seymour was willing to sit outside of a Bible seminar, wasn't even allowed to study inside, had to study outside. But he was willing to do it because he wanted the baptism so desperately and he wanted Bible evidence. He wanted to be sure it was not a fanatical, something fanatical that you could not prove with the Bible. So his whole purpose of attending the seminar with Charles Fox Parham in Texas under Jim Crow laws that should have been condemned that we shouldn't even have to repeat, so diabolical those Jim Crow laws in Texas in the 1900s that would not even allow Christians to pray at the altar together. Hello, I'm talking to somebody. We have to know our background. We have to know our Christian heritage and know where we missed it and know where we didn't miss it. And William Joseph Seymour, so willing to do the will of God, so willing to get the Bible evidence because he was going to teach it. He wanted baptism in the spirit, but he needed proof. He wanted biblical evidence that speaking in tongues was biblical. So he attended the seminar. And if we look and see, he did not receive the baptism there. And as you know, he went back to, he was then called to Los Angeles. And so many times when we obey God, and we say yes to the Lord, and we give our last penny, or we give our last yes to God, and we obey God, and have you ever obeyed God, and then when you obeyed him, everything went wrong? Has that ever happened to anyone? He said, God, I did what you told me to do. Why is this happening? 
God, I obeyed you. He obeyed. He was called to be a preacher. And someone asked him to pastor a church. It was a holiness church. He was a holiness preacher. And he thought it's a perfect fit. I'll go into that church where they asked me to be the pastor and they don't know about baptism in the spirit yet. And I'll teach them. We'll all enter into the next level together. But guess what? He paid his last dollar to go there and preach. And they locked him out after he preached on baptism in the Holy Spirit. But guess what? God really did send him to Los Angeles for a surprise, something so great. Say this with me. The eye has not seen, neither has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. When you put God first, when you put the kingdom first, when you're willing to put everything on the line, hallelujah, for the things of God. We have a church that puts everything on the line for things of the world. But now it's time for the church to put everything on the line for the things of heaven. Somebody should shout the victory. And William Joseph Seymour was locked out, but it was God's will. Because a family from that holiness church invited him and said, you know, Brother Seymour, you don't have any money. You don't have anywhere to stay. Come and stay in our home. So he stayed in the home of Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee took care of him. And then another family by the name, hallelujah, of Asbury's. The Asbury family said, why don't we just start seeking God and have a little prayer meeting at 214 North Bonnie Bray? And so every day, they went on a 10-day fast, seeking God. And by the third day, something supernatural happened. Fire fell from heaven. I'm talking about fire that fell from heaven. You cannot give everything up for the kingdom. And the kingdom, the power of God not show up. The power of God showed up. And you know something? The place became so packed after just a few days that they had to find a place that would be legally able to hold that many people. And the Azusa Street Mission was the apostolic faith mission is what followed. Now, why am I saying that? Because some of us want to say, might want to see, what did the upper room actually look like? How can we translate what happened in the upper room with a modern day experience? What does that look like in 2022? What does the upper room look like today? We know that they were filled with the Holy Ghost in the upper room, but how does that look in today? In today? So I want you to see. First of all, we have to come to the understanding that the Bible is going to speak to us about two distinct operations of tongues. The other tongues and that which happened on the day of Pentecost is not the charismatic gift of tongues. 
it is the sign of tongues. I'm going to go a little further. I want you to know, and I'm going to prove it through the word of God. It is the sign of tongues, which is a sign to the unbeliever. Do you understand? The gift of tongues is unknown tongues. And it is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's a prayer language. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, verse 2, says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue does not speak unto men, but unto God. That's the prayer language. For no man understandeth him, howbeit he speaketh unto God in mysteries. That's the charismatic gift of tongues. Say it with me, the charismatic gift of tongues. Say this with me, a different function for a different unction. Say it again, a different function for a different unction. So the charismatic gift of tongues is given for your prayer language. And always when it's manifested in public, it must be accompanied with a prophecy. That's the way God ordained it to be. So the interpretation of tongues is among the prophetic gifts of the Spirit. So we have the prayer language of tongues, which is shown to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we see the thesis that Paul wrote on the gifts of the Spirit beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Chapters 12 through 14 teach us about the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. But then there is the sign of speaking in tongues. You say, Dr. Correll, where do we find that? Well, first let's go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 so we can have everything completely scriptural. Let us look at the Word of God. The Bible says, notice the distinction between the two gifts. The Bible says in verse chapter 14, verse 1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Notice the spiritual gifts that he's speaking about are very specific. This word spiritual gifts is also used, beloved saints, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Bible says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you ignorant. So we see that the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1, and the spiritual gifts speaking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, are one and the same. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. These are the nine charismatic gifts of the Holy Ghost that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But Paul is going to teach us how to access them and how to use them properly. Dr. Corral, why are you going through all this? I'm going through all this because you better learn how to operate in the supernatural. Because now is the time that God is going to be raising up his church to heal the sick. Hallelujah. To raise the dead. To cleanse the leper. To go into all the world to preach the gospel. And so we see this gift of tongues that is given to the individual. The Bible says, and looking at verse 2, the Bible says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, unknown, speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Say it with me. He that speaks in an unknown tongue, speaks not unto men, but unto God. 
Now, I want you to see, the Bible now goes and tells us, as Paul explains the use and how to administer the prayer language and the sign of tongues. Notice, verse 22. The Bible says, Wherefore tongues are a sign not for them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not to them that believe not, but to them that believe. What is he speaking about? What is he speaking about? He's speaking about two different gifts. The one that came in the upper room on the day of Pentecost was the sign that was given to the unbeliever. Why? Because they went out of the upper room and 3,000 were one unto the Lord that day. And I will explain to you what that looks like because when you see the Azusa revival, you will understand what happened. It was a repeat of the day of Pentecost. And I don't know about you, but I want a repeat of the day of Pentecost in our midst. And the prayer language is not a sign to the unbeliever because he says, what if they come into the room and they hear you babbling in tongues and there's no interpretation? What will the unbeliever say? The unbeliever will not be converted because why? It's a different unction with a different function, a different kind of gift so that we have to understand that when we come together in an assembly like this, that there is a unity that the Holy Ghost wants to give as we pray in tongues and there will always be interpretation of those tongues to build up the body of Christ. Say this with me, Holy Spirit, get me out of the mold of the old. Come on, get me out of the mold of the old and get me scriptural. Help me be scriptural. Say, I want to be scriptural. Come on, people, I want to be scriptural. So now we are seeing what happened on the day of Pentecost since it's a sign to the unbeliever. Let's go to Acts chapter Chapter 2, so we can understand this. Hallelujah. This is the message the Holy Ghost wants tonight. It's not my message, it's his. Because we're pressing our way into the supernatural. Hello. Notice. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the difference between other tongues and unknown tongues. Say it with me. Other tongues and unknown tongues. Say this with me. Unknown tongues. We speak not unto man, but unto God. And other tongues, we speak to men. Watch this. I will prove it right here. The Bible tells us, and how is it after they're filled with the Spirit? The Bible says in verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these Galileans? How do we hear every man in our own tongue? Are they speaking unto men or unto God? They're speaking unto men, aren't they? So it's another operation of tongues. Do you get it? They're speaking unto men. How is it that every man hears them speaking in their own tongue? So one is speaking unto men and one is speaking unto God. Say it with me. One is speaking unto men 
And one is speaking unto God. Let's continue. And he says, how is it that we hear every man in our own tongue where we were born? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Persia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all parts of Libya, Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, and Jews and proselytes. Cretes and Arabians, do hear them speak in our tongues. Say unto men. In our tongues, the wonderful works of God. All right. So you ask the question, what does that look like? How come we don't see it now? Turn to your neighbor and say, because we need revival. Let's say it again. We don't see it now because we're stuck in a formula that's actually unscriptural. whether we realize it or not. The Holy Spirit doesn't mean that what we're doing is invalid, but what it means is the Holy Spirit honors our heart and he allows us to speak in the prayer language, but it is not the, the language that, is, that was used in the upper room. But I'll tell you something. That's the charismatic gift. So we just need to sharpen it up a little. Say this with me. We got to polish things up. Okay, we're just polishing, okay, but our understanding of it, I'm not saying that when we speak in tongues that's unscriptural, that is not true what I'm saying. I'm saying that we got it backwards. We don't understand the purpose. One is for the unbeliever, the other is a prayer language. So if we're going to use the prayer language, we need to polish it up and do it right. Hello, somebody. Say this with me. We have to polish up things. The only way we can do that is through the word of God and do what Bishop Seymour did and do everything scriptural. Hello, somebody. Say, we're going to do everything like Azusa. We're going to do everything like Azusa. We're going to be scriptural in what we do. Somebody ought to praise God. So what happened at Azusa? All right. Bishop Seymour was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and, and this is where God had to use the vessel that was so meek, someone that was so humble, someone that didn't want to be seen, someone that was yielded, someone that, that he could just move, and someone that would pray continuously. Actually, Bishop Seymour was so yielded that when the Holy Spirit told him that I want you to pray seven hours a day, he did it. And even for five hours a day when the revival began. And so what would happen in Azusa before multitudes started coming to Azusa? And they came to Azusa with no, with no um, kind of ability to advertise the work of God the way we do it today. They didn't have television. They didn't have radio. They didn't have a phone. They didn't have the internet. They had nothing except the Spirit of God to draw. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to say amen. And what would happen is a phenomenon. For example, there were research. There was a, a very incredible research done for many years. One of the church historians that did this work is a, name, a man by the name of Cecil Robeck. 
He is a professor of church history at Fuller Theological Seminary. And what is so outstanding is when we get research and when we have really articulate research, so the two, the two experts on Azusa that I would say would be Professor Cecil Robrick, who was actually raised in Pentecostalism his whole life and is an outstanding scholar concerning the historical events that took place. He spent so much of his life getting newspaper articles and interviewing people and just unbelievable research that's top of the line. And then, of course, the expert of all experts in our generation who just went home to be with the Lord last year, Dr. Vincent Sinan. Dr. Vincent Sinan is an, a, an established, distinguished church historian. I would say that he is equal with Eusebius in our modern day. Eusebius was the early church historian, but I say Dr. Vincent Sinan actually would be the modern day Eusebius who just went home to be with the Lord. His excellent expertise in charismatic history. He knows all the stats, all of the figures of how many people were baptized in the spirit and what happened as a result of, he wrote the book, The Century of the Holy Spirit, because as a result of Azusa, the whole century got empowered with Pentecostal, <laughs> hallelujah, Pentecostal outpouring, including the charismatics and the Pentecostals. So we see that uh, according to this research done by both, that this is what happened, that when the power would fall in Azusa, and usually it would fall during preaching, it didn't always fall when somebody had hands laid on them. It would happen when people came into the room and preaching was going on, and they didn't spend a lot of time preaching. They spent most of the time praying and seeking God. But the, when the preaching would go on, some would be filled with the Spirit like a 12-year-old boy who was filled with the Holy Ghost and was raising his hands, crying and speaking in tongues. And a man who was a Mayan Indian came into the revival and happened to sit next to this young boy who was standing up crying, raising his hands and speaking in tongues. He was magnifying God in tongues. And the Mayan Indian ran to the altar. And they said, why are you running to the altar? And he said, this young boy called me by name in my not Mayan language. And as his hands were raised, and as he was speaking in tongues, he was preaching the gospel to me and told me that I needed to give my life to the Lord. Hallelujah. Somebody should shout the victory. Another account of a man who is one of the most astute charismatic leaders in the last generation, and his name is John Sherrill. John Sherrill worked for a very affluent Christian magazine, uh, or magazine. I don't know if it was Christian, but it was an affluent magazine. And he was, there were a lot of skeptics that criticized Azusa because they didn't believe in speaking in tongues, because up to Azusa, no one had the name Pentecostal. Up to the time of Azusa, no one spoke in tongues. This is the birth of the speaking in tongues and the century of the Holy Spirit at Azusa. Are you with me? And so 
this man was hired to go and get evidence being an expert reporter to just smear the whole revival because people did not understand how people could fall out under the power because what would happen is the spirit of conviction. This is something that we know revivals upon us when the spirit of conviction comes because the spirit of conviction not only comes on people to be saved and born again, but the spirit of conviction also moves on the church for deeper levels of holiness and surrender to God. This is how you know you're in a revival when the spirit of conviction begins to fall out on the church and people begin to surrender themselves to the power of the Holy Ghost and begin to surrender for greater levels of holiness in their lives. Are you with me? And so if you mark the evidence of real convicting power of the Holy Ghost, you will understand that when that convicting power comes, when it's the full manifestation of convicting power, people will be touched to the point they fall like slain dead men with nobody touching them. Let me read. I'll read you Frank Bartleman, who was the intercessor for Azusa, what he said. He said, strong men lie for hours under the mighty power of God. And what the report was, was that even at the Union train station near Azusa, that the power of God would be so strong coming from Azusa, that people getting off the trains would be slain under the power of God, under the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. Somebody ought to say, that's a revival. Somebody ought to say, that's the power of God in our midst. And so this man came in there to write up, to write up the revival and smear it. And there was a young girl in the upper room because Bishop Seymour in that dilapidated building that the Holy Ghost chose. Oh, he didn't choose a cathedral. No, he didn't choose a wonderful hall or some beautiful place, an edifice filled with lights and beautiful fixtures. He chose a dilapidated, a dilapidated building. Somebody ought to praise God so that no flesh could glory in his presence. And so this man, John Sherrill, came into the revival and there was a young girl in the tarrying room upstairs of the Azusa Apostolic Faith Mission was certain living quarters for Bishop Seymour and his staff. They lived upstairs. Downstairs was the assembly room. And then also upstairs, they had what was called the tarrying room. This young girl was up there tarrying. She was praying. She was praying for hours. She was praying in the spirit. And when Bishop Seymour wanted to call the assembly to hear the word because everybody would be out praying or they'd be falling out under the power or there would be some miraculous manifestation at the same time, everyone was used of God. So if there was a sick person and someone was in the audience, they would lay hands on them. They didn't wait for Bishop Seymour because why? The anointing is on the body of Christ. The anointing is on his people. I can't get a witness somewhere. And so uh, Bishop would ring a bell 
when it was time for everyone to assemble to hear the word. So the bell rang. And this young girl came out of the tarrying room. And John Sherrill was going up the stairs just to find fault to write up somebody that was a fanatic. And the girl stopped and she pointed at him and she started praying in tongues. She prayed in tongues for about 15 minutes. And the man took her by the arm and he brought her down to the pulpit downstairs. And he said, you don't know what just happened. He said, I am a Jew. I came in here as hired by such and such magazine to destroy this revival. But she just told me my name in the Hebrew language and told me that the God of Israel is telling me to repent. Somebody ought to give God the praise. So at Azusa, we not only see the prayer language in operation, but at Azusa, we see what happened in the book of Acts happening, and it will happen again. Somebody ought to shout the victory. What was the secret of Azusa? The same secret that caused the charismatic renewal to be strong. It was the secret of Christian unity. It was the secret of oneness in the spirit. I hope somebody's hearing what I'm talking about. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast. 